Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Stack, highlighting some of the best interviews we did this year. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Well, we had a great year here on The Stack, amazing guests, amazing packages from our contributors, so we decided to select, you know, some of the highlights. We're going to start on a very fun note. I spoke to Tashin's sexy book editor, Diane Hansen, on her impressive six-volume collection on the history of men's magazines. Of course, there are very few magazines left. Everyone has moved online. In 1997, this began. You know, my magazine, the magazine that introduced me to to Benedict, that he he was a huge fan of this magazine in Germany as a young man, was called Leg Show. And it was a fetish magazine, lingerie, feet, female dominance, transvestism, all kinds of fetishy things. And our, our sales were going up, 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 up. And then in 1997, we lost 10% of our sales. And we're like, we don't understand. The next year, we lost 10% more. And then we found out this was happening to all the magazines because the internet had arrived. And on the internet, anything could be shown. There was no way to track it down. So suddenly there was this move away from soft core imagery for men's magazines and gay magazines to hardcore material that couldn't be tracked down and couldn't be controlled online because the internet is international. So this moved heavily there. Some magazines tried to use hardcore, like the American magazine Penthouse went to hardcore. Still, it didn't improve their sales because when you had the internet, you could watch in private. You didn't have a paper magazine that you had to hide from your wife, that you had to hide from your kids. Suddenly, it was all ephemeral. You could just look at digital images and shut down the computer and walk away and no one would know. And this led to the current age that we're in now where Gen Z, you know, this generation of, do you have the same thing there, I'm assuming? Yeah. Gen Z people in their late teens to their mid-20s, they are the first generation that grew up with ubiquitous online pornography. And they, on average, started viewing it at 11 or 12 years old, seeing the hardest, most extreme material. And this has had a huge impact on this generation, that they are having less sex, than any known generation in history. They are far more prudish. We are seeing a 4,000% increase in teen girls who want to transition to be males. And when I start asking some of these people online what effect pornography had on them, I'll get answers like, I can't talk about it. I was so traumatized by the first porn I saw. And I think that's helping to drive this as well that a 12-year-old girl sees an anal gangbang, you know, sees girls being choked, sees some of the stuff that is easily available online. She doesn't want to grow up to be a woman and to feel like she's going to be having to have this kind of sex. So it seems that 
our new Puritanism. And there is something called Puritines here in the U.S. that they don't want to have sex. They disapprove of other teens who are having sex. But it's not that they're not having any sex. There's just a lot of masturbation going on. So that they are looking at pornography and masturbating and pulling away from actual sexual contact with other people. That's really interesting. And, and in some ways, it's a shame as well, Diane, because, you know, looking at an amazing collection starting at the 1900s, because something had, has been lost as well, because the illustrations, there was, there's something quite beautiful about it, actually. Oh, there, yeah. there, there's a level of cheekiness. And, and I love the humor, you know, the taglines on the magazines. It, it, it's just amazing. And, and I think the book is a celebration of that as well, right? We, when I first got into the business in the, you know, in the mid 70s, this was before AIDS, when sex seemed to be safe and fun. And we thought, you know, sex and love equated. We had so much fun thinking up these titles for magazines and the taglines and all the jokes. It just seemed like the whole world was going to become more open, more loving, more sexually accepting. We, we never imagined really what was coming in the 80s. And the effect that, that AIDS, HIV, and I worked in New York, you know, which was kind of the center of, of AIDS in America. We never imagined the effect that this was going to have, seeing our friends, seeing our colleagues, all the people we worked with getting sick and dying, and this, the way it sort of triggered the second wave of sex-negative feminism that was blaming pornography on violence and crime, rape, and tying it into the AIDS epidemic it just all started crashing at that point. And this is a reason why we stopped the books at 1979. Mm. I was going to ask you precisely that. And another thing, perhaps in the 60s, in the 70s, this was quite big business, right? Because even the more traditional magazines like Playboy, let's say, they had big budgets. I mean, I remember even oh, yeah. the Brazilian Playboy, they take you know, the model to Tahiti, you know, and to do a photo shoot, mm -hmm. which is completely different from the more recent decade, which is slightly cheaper. And so I guess it was quite big business for those magazines, right? Not only Playboy, but other, other ones as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, the top three in the U.S. were Playboy, Penthouse and Hustler. And yeah, they had huge, lavish budgets. Even Leg Show, where I was working, I mean, we were selling at our peak just maybe... 175,000 copies a month, but we were buying our photo sets outright. We were paying $5,000 per photo set to own them. And I was buying designer clothes to dress the models. <laughs> I was buying Manolo Blahniks. I was buying, I mean, yes, I was, I was going to the Manolo Blahnik sale to buy the shoes, but still, the money that I spent on wardrobe, and I still have this wardrobe. When I left, I took the wardrobe. Unbelievable, you know, renting locations, renting huge painted backdrops to do photo sets. It was a wonderful, lavish period. And then it all just ended, you know, in, in the late 90s when the sales started going down. Then they're like, okay, you got to back up. You got to reuse things. You have to... Let's put a set we used five years ago in there. And of course, that's just horrible 
for any editor to hear, no, no, don't reuse stuff. It just shows that you're going down the toilet. Thank you very much, Diane. What a pleasure talking to you. And now we love a new title here on the stack. And there's been this lovely new French title. It's called Sloft. It's a design title, but only focuses in smaller spaces because that's where we live now. So I spoke to the editors. Let's have a listen. Sloft uh, focuses on, you know, like small uh, dwellings, small apartments, in a way to give ideas and inspiration to all uh, people who are not living in uh, big mansions or in, in big penthouses. And I think most people don't live in, in such, a, you know, magnificent uh, uh, dwellings. So, in fact, the idea of Sloft was just to interest ourselves to places where most of people live in. And it's so true because, I mean, I love design magazines and, you know, sometimes it's beautiful to see a mansion, you get inspiration, but sometimes you want something a bit practical. Say, you know, I myself, I live in, a, I believe, 45 to 50 square meters and I say, well, how can I use the space? And I think a magazine like yours, and it seems to be hitting, a, you know, a chord with, with, with your buyers. Tell us about more, Greg, since, since the magazine has been released, how has been the reaction as well? Not only in France, I know you have some international uh, readers too. So the magazine you're referring to is our printed magazine. Uh, so it's the printed editorial of stuff. We also have, uh, obviously, a digital editorial, uh, which is, uh, you know, of course, wider and enriches a wider audience. But the printed magazine, so we've already launched three issues. The first issue came out in December 2021. And they are sold actually worldwide. So you can buy them on our eShop, but you can also buy them in New York, in Los Angeles, in London, in Milan, Tokyo, Seoul. So it's sold uh, everywhere in, in most of the big cities around the world. And the magazine itself is bilingual. So it's French and English. And I find this is a great idea because, as I said, I haven't seen many magazines like this. And Jean, do you think it reflects the way we live now? Because it is true. I mean, properties, not only in the big cities, but they are it is becoming smaller. There's a little bit more scarcity of space. So this is kind of a reflection as well about the way we live, right? Uh, sure. In fact, uh, as we're becoming uh, more numerous on this planet, uh, in fact, we're getting uh, more and more numerous in big cities. So the purpose of, of Sloft is also to give an answer to this question, because cities are a good solution to house uh, more and more people and to avoid, you know, uh, constructing houses uh, all over the countryside uh, because countryside now has to be dedicated to feeding people. So how do we live more numerous in, in cities? And also it is linked to the way we live now because in fact, the family structure has changed because sometimes of uh, divorces, et cetera, et cetera. And while you were living in big apartments with all the family, now sometimes you uh, switch to two smaller apartments. So it is a way also to uh, interest ourselves and to give solution to all this new kind of living. So in an ecological uh, point of view and also in a practical point of view. And, and because also there is a, another uh, trend, which is the increase of, of, the, of the real estate uh, costs. And so now it costs you more and more money just, just to house yourself in a city. So you can't afford as much space as you could uh, do uh, before. And so how do you still have convenient places, well done, nice, but optimized? And that is also the purpose of uh, Surf Magazine. 
And now I have a question for both of you. I mean, don't worry, you don't need to reveal me your uh, full address. But when was the, did you always have this connection with design or that's the first venture for both of you? And I wonder as well if the type of apartment you live, it's also that something that could potentially be featured uh, at Loft. And by the way, Paris is one of my favorite cities. I know there's incredible apartments there as well. Yes, I've got a kind of, of connection with the creative industry. Uh, as I started my career as a copywriter in an advertising agency. And at that time, you know, because I was a, a young professional, I couldn't afford my, my own apartment. So I was sharing a house with friends of, of, of mine. But uh, then I, I, I had a new job, a bit more well, uh, well paid. And so I could afford my own apartment, but it was not a big apartment. It was a 50 square apartment. And because I was uh, working in the, the creative industry, I wanted to do things nice because I was surrounded by art directors, et cetera, et cetera. And so because I was not a designer or an architect, I, I wanted to get some inspiration. And so I just went at the first uh, 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 magazine shop around the corner to get inspiration. And I was really disappointed because all the magazines were just about how to uh, uh, design 300 square, square meters uh, in a cocoon way or uh, their uh, full marble decoration. So it was not speaking to me. And I said to myself, it's impossible that uh, there is no inspiration tool for, I think I, I'm not the only one in, the, in this case. So it, it, to me, it was uh, incredible that there was no uh, inspiration tool for all these this needs. And I went to Grégoire uh, telling uh, him uh, this, uh, this story or this insight. And because Grégoire was a bit bored of his uh, job in, in L'Oréal, because he just uh, broke up uh, with his uh, girlfriend, he wanted a fresh start. And he said, OK, let's do it. Let's uh, do this idea. Uh, yes, and, and we launched uh, Soft. Thank you both, Jean and Grégoire. And this year, one of my favorite magazines of all time. They have a new look. Fantastic man, that's what I'm talking about. Of course, I mean, the cover of Giorgio Armani, perfection. And it's always great to catch up in studio with Hat Yonkers, editor of the title. The last couple of years, I'm, I'm particularly fascinated by Giorgio Armani because he's very singular. But he's also, you sometimes forget how extravagant he is or how eccentric he is. Mm -hmm. And that was great working on the story. Alistair McLellan photographed him for us in the summer. And we, were, we did the story and we interviewed him and we wrote about him. Already for the last couple of seasons, looking at his shows, it's very eccentric. And we sometimes forget that because, you know, it's such a household name that you almost forget how specific it is. And it's just like everything looks normal but isn't normal and that's what i'm i find very interesting about armani maybe he's also you think he's a normal man but of course he's not normal at all i mean look what he's done it's sort of like it's pretty out of this world yeah it's just fascinating we were looking at things we we're looking at videos of him and then i realized I've, i've rarely heard him talk you don't really see him on you know like like we used to see Karl Lagerfeld on every other talk show that you would switch on uh, in the middle of the night on a, on German TV or something or French TV but Armani I don't know I mean I he's 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 a quiet legend exactly and you know what and I like magazines with quiet legends on the cover I love to know about the new actors new singers but I think I don't know. And it's a legend. It's a legend. And the cover is amazing. Who is the photographer, actually? Alison McLellan shot it. You know, he's the best men's photographer in But, the world, maybe at this moment. But yeah. 
Go ahead, tell us about in terms of the content. Of course, it's still fantastic, man. I mean, it's not that you've you know suddenly changed everything, but what else do you think you've changed in this new iteration of the magazine? We still try to stay very close to ourselves, mm -hmm. so that hasn't changed. I think, well, for the last couple of years, we very much worked with themes, uh, which was very interesting. Weirdly, we came up with the idea of themes before the pandemic. And then the pandemic happened and, and work all became very different. And the idea of themes worked very well. Somehow to sort of, you know, we couldn't see each other. We just had to do everything over the dreaded Zoom. But the sort of the themes almost kept things together in a way that we couldn't see each other. But now we've sort of like got rid of the themes again because we really feel like, well, the magazine is actually the magazine. And there are people in it that are just remarkable and exciting and then do quietly exciting things. You know, the first story in the issue is about this French man called Joseph Chiano di Lombo, who is a amazing composer and a musician, but he also wrote a novel and he's sometimes a model and he is an amazing illustrator. And nobody maybe knows, I mean, you know, some people know him, but he is not super well known. Yet he's so fascinating and remarkable. And again, maybe in a way, he's his own sort of quiet hero that we, you know, we were just very interested in. And what I'm interested as well in the new issue is about men's fashion. I mean, I've been following some men's magazines and I think there's been a striking change in the way they cover fashion, you know, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's fairly young. It went from the James Bond types to kind of fairly young. But I think when the good thing about Fantastic Man, you guys were doing the kind of younger, cool fashion before, but also also the traditional. I think you, you do a lovely mix and you care about the pieces, you know. There was oh, this, we love clothes. Yeah, you, I, that that's transpires. In, you know, we, in we, we, we almost don't like fashion, but we yes. love clothes. No, there's a, there's a great story that Jodie Barnes styled with Clément Chabernot, the mm. model that has been many times in Fantastic Man, actually. So he almost feels like a friend of the family, or maybe he is. It's with bombers, but it's been sort of like he wears it with a shirt and tie, and maybe with a, with a, a light pair of jeans. To me, they're super inspiring looks and super inspiring stories. Well, as you, you, you remember back in the day when you interned with us in Amsterdam, which I, it's a time that I fondly remember. Me too. It's just a sort of, you know, there's this, this passion for clothes. I mean, I, I think when we were all in the same office, we maybe all started to look a little bit like each other, mm -hmm. or we sort of started to look at, you know, you were wearing Timberlands, I would be wearing Timberlands, <laughs> yes. or sort of, it's sort of one-upping each other a Some little Levi's bit. Some Levi's jeans, I remember Exactly, those. Yeah. exactly. No, that's still, those still sort of remain the cornerstones that we keep going back to and uh, that we keep uh, sort of like loving more and more. Well, besides, of course, the magazine, which is incredibly exciting, you've been busy. I mean, first of all, I love the newsletters. Uh, Thank I you. Read, I love your recommendations. Thank you. Yeah, people should uh, subscribe to the newsletter. I, I mean, many people do, but more people can, the Fantastic Man newsletter. So go on the website and click on that and leave your email address behind. It's fun to write them. I think it's super fun. What about Butt magazine? I mean, I know it's been over a year, perhaps, that the kind of the new Butt came two out. Two years. Two years. Almost two years. I mean, it's been a success. I mean, I Very think people much. love it. Yeah, no, we, again, that was something that we took a break with. And for about 10 years, well, more than 10 years, we didn't make any print issues with Butt. And it just sort of felt right. When we, when we stopped publishing the magazine, it was also, we felt a little bit, there was... Um, 
people were afraid to open up and sort of tell us their stories. There was a, I think, I sometimes said that people wouldn't say things because they were afraid they were going to end up on the internet or on Twitter or something. And that sort of like held us back a little bit in sort of the joy of making the magazine. Because if you feel that people become very guarded, that's like the opposite of what Butt is. Mm. And that completely changed. I mean, it was funny. Just we felt like, you know, there was a new conversation happening and people were talking about other things and people felt free to talk about their sexuality or their love life or their or their personal life. Maybe that's, that's what ultimately what the magazine is about. And so last year we relaunched the magazine. It was around the time when we were actually in conversation with Bottega Veneta, who also said to us like, oh, you know, we fondly remember that magazine and would you ever consider doing one? And we said like, well, that's funny because we were thinking the exact same thing. And so we brought it back. We've made four issues since. I mean, we've never made so many in such a short time, I think, just because we're excited to share these stories of people. Thank you very much, Hat. And I'm sure I'll be welcoming you back to the stack next year as well. And now it's time for one of my favorite interviews of the year. It was such a pleasure to talk with author Roland Allen. He basically wrote a book about the history of the notebook. I mean, a lot of things that I had no idea. The book is called The Notebook, A History of Thinking on Paper. Let's have a listen. The book started because of a curiosity about notebooks and in turn that was because notebooks had come to play quite an important part I guess in my life as they do in lots of people's lives. I started keeping a diary when I was about 28 and that was inspired by my finding my grandfather's old diaries and he had died many years before and I didn't know him really but then learning about his very interesting life before the war and things like that made me quite curious about what it would be like to keep my own diary. And then I just started filling notebooks with more and more and more and more stuff and started writing down anything, really, not just what happened to me. And I guess then after a while, I started noticing other people's. There are a lot of people like that, as you know, I've seen your notebooks, yes. which are remarkably lively. And therefore, I just became curious about this thing. Everyone seemed to have them and no one seemed to know anything about them, if you like. And it's interesting that, of course, people say we are in a digital world. I mean, a lot of people have their notes on iPhone. But, I mean, there is still, of course, there is a market for the notebook. I don't think it's dying out, right? Why is that, do you think? Well, lots and lots of answers. I guess if you're doing a straight comparison with, we talk about making notes on our phone and using our phone calendars, things like that, there is definitely a kind of note which is much better made on paper. And they know this now, they've done a lot of research. Actually, interestingly, in Japan, where obviously they're very tech-savvy and the heavy tech users, but also they know a lot about stationery, which I think we'll talk about later. So they've looked at how effective note-taking is when you do it on a screen, as opposed to when you do it on physical paper. And it's very clear that you remember things better if you write them down on paper, you process them better if you're analysing them in some way. And therefore, you could sort of imply from that it's more creative. Obviously, there are times when you're keeping something very simple, which you don't need to analyze particularly, like a phone number or address or something. But any time it's getting more complicated, more sophisticated, you're much better off putting it on paper. And that seems to be to do with a couple of things, including the act of handwriting, which is a motor act and a sensory act, and therefore involves the brain more than just moving your thumbs. And there's also something to do with our mental maps of ideas. So we're used to the idea of a mental map of places. 
whether it's just in your home, you know, where you put things in the kitchen or the city you live in. But also when you write an idea down on paper in a notebook, you also give it a place and it is then located in that notebook. And when you flick from page to page, you're looking for something and you already have an idea where it is. There is a school of thought that if you write something on the screen of an iPad and then flip the screen, turn the page if you like, it's just vanished into the iPad as far as your brain is concerned and your mental map can't then relocate it as easily as you can when you've written it on paper. So, yes, there are lots of reasons why I think that paper is definitely here to stay. As I say, particularly, I think if you're doing anything creative with ideas, with numbers, with words, it's a really important step to go through. I think so as well. And fascinating looking at the history of it, because I, I got to be honest, Roland, before, you know, reading your book, I had no idea who was the first person to use it. And I think we can kind of give it to the Italians in a way, right? Yeah, it certainly... The, Yes and no. So uh, definitely in the Arabic or Muslim Islamic world, they were using notebooks earlier than they were in Europe. The problem we have is that very, very few of them have survived. So we don't really know how. In Europe, on the other hand, lots of them have survived. You can date it very precisely. So it's the second half of the 13th century. They start using them in Italy and they start making paper in Italy, which is the first successful paper manufacturer in Christian Europe in about the year 1270, uh, in Fabriano in Italy, where they still make paper. And we can date it quite precisely, and we can say exactly what they were using notebooks for then. So I guess it's suitably for Monocle. It's all tied up with business and travel and, and leisure. When did they become kind of, let's say, widely available to people? Because I presume in 1300, I mean, yeah. probably just a certain elite might have that, right? Yeah, it was... Um, That's a, really, that's a really interesting question, actually. Mm. It depends much more on your geography than your class. Mm. If you lived in Florence, then it was easy. Everyone had access to paper and notebooks, and it wasn't particularly expensive. It was made down the road, and it was really, really widely used. And if you look at Florence back in, say, the 1300s, it's incredibly literate. Nearly everyone, men and women, could read or write up to a point. And definitely a lot of people were keeping notebooks at home. You see this from people's wills. Even people who are shoemakers will leave two or three books, and there won't be printed books, will leave two or three books behind them when they die. If you're lucky enough to be in Florence or in one of the Tuscan towns or some other Italian cities, it's a very democratic thing, like nearly everyone will have one. If you go further afield, it changes completely. We know, for instance, a hundred years later when Chaucer was writing about England, very, very few paper notebooks in England at that time because he had to explain to people what a paper notebook was like, what it felt like, which he does in a couple of his poems. So he's evidently talking about something which they're not familiar with. And we know we have very few manuscripts on paper from that period from England. So people were still writing on parchment, and parchment at that point well, always is really expensive as a material, not very practical. It's quite hard to use parchment and very difficult to make. And if we could move along a, a few years, there's other, an interesting section of the book, what happened in the Netherlands, that the book being used kind of a, as a kind of a social media, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, there was the early social media way. Can, can you tell us a bit more about that? Oh, this, this is lovely. I mean, mm. it's some of my favorite notebooks, actually, mm. um, when I came across this. So there's this boom period in education over the course of the 16th century and particularly in in the netherlands and in holland 
people, more and more men, are going to university and studying, and universities are springing up all over the Netherlands, and they start to keep these little albums called Alba Amicorum, which means friendship album. And what you would do when you made friends with someone, you would offer them your album quite ceremonially, and it would have a blank page for them, and they would put a little motto, a little inscription, they would draw a little picture, and dedicate it to you with sincere friendship. And your notebook would fill up with these dedications from everyone you met, and if you travelled, and travel was encouraged for education, you would partly use this notebook to introduce yourself to mutual acquaintances and make new friends, and then when you went back home again, you could show it to your parents or whoever and say, look, I met Martin Luther, or um, I met such and such a professor, and in that sense, they are very much like Facebook or LinkedIn, this sense of forging a tangible connection between people and it, it is quite it is very sincere as well because these messages are heartfelt in the same way as you know Facebook at the same time is a really sincere experience but also you know quite tiring and cynical and they also start to fill these books with pictures so again if you went to a new town a common thing was to find the local artist and get them to draw a picture of the new town on a page in your notebook and it would be like a it would be like an Instagram selfie of, you know, yourself on holiday or something like that. You could, again, you could take it back and show your friends where you'd been. And if you were an artist in Amsterdam, then people would bug you to draw in their album. So there are some lovely sketches by contemporary Dutch artists, and this was the golden age of Dutch art, in people's notebooks. So they're wonderful little things. Thank you very much, Roland. And that's it for this week's show, and Merry Christmas, everyone. My thanks, as ever, to our editor, Jack Jewers. And we'll be back with the stack next week as well. It's going to be another very special show. If you have any comments or queries, email me at fp at monaco.com. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.